What's up, y'all? Welcome back to the Fifth and Long Podcast, presented to you by Patrick Demar and Paul, the Kamish Kashak. I uh, got a little something different for you today. No football this weekend, with the exception of the Pro Bowl, which let's be real, who cares? Anyways, um, <laughs> there's some Senior Bowl stuff going on, which is which is something uh, I personally have my eyes on uh, with the Patriots selecting at number three overall this year. You never know what could happen. Um, but yeah, this episode we're we're talking some hoops college hoops the nba uh, got a bunch of different topics we're doing sort of like a mid-season nba analysis um as well as a check-in on on college hoops previewing some pretty big games this weekend paul gives his top four teams in the country and um kind of breaks down how how the landscape of college hoops works nowadays so um without further ado i'm going to give way to paul who is leading our, our college hoops segment and uh yeah, enjoy the episode. we got a good one for you here today and a lot of awesome stuff coming as well for you in the future. Follow us on the socials at Fifth and Long on Twitter, at Fifth and Long Pod on Instagram and YouTube. And enjoy the show. Ladies and germs, welcome back to the Fifth and Long Podcast. Things are going to be a little bit different today. Uh, we've been talking a ton of football in the past few episodes, but today we're going to transition to the hard court. We're going to be talking some college basketball and some NBA as well. I'm, of course, joined by my co-host, Patrick DeMar. Patrick, how are you doing, my friend? I am uh, magnificent. Thank you for asking, brother. How about you? Of course, dude. I'm doing great. Um, like I said, we're talking college b-ball and NBA. Uh, college basketball, for those of our listeners who don't know, it's my personal favorite sport. Uh, I love talking about it. I love March Madness. It's my favorite sporting event. and um, Man, this time of year for me, back when I was really young, before I actually got into college basketball, I used to call it like the dark calendar, the dark time of the calendar in sports. And for me, that stemmed because obviously I grew up a huge Pirates fan and a huge Steeler fan. And those are my two sports and my two teams. It was football and baseball. Yeah. And so this time of year, as the college game winds down, and as the professional game winds down as well, like we have the Super Bowl coming up in a week or so, and then the NFL will be done. There's this two, three month gap between the end of football and the start of baseball. And when I was real young, I want to say like second grade, I was, I was real mopey. You know, my parents tell me the story and I didn't have any sports to watch, didn't really have anything to, to occupy my time. And so one day my dad sat me down. He showed me what the NCAA tournament bracket was showed me how to fill out a bracket. And that year I watched the tournament for the first time. And from then on, I was forever hooked, dude. Uh, that year was the year George Mason made their magical Cinderella final four run yeah. to the NCAA tournament as an nice. 11 seed. And um, dude, I, I I won my like family pool. I did it with my mom <laughs> and my dad. I ended up winning and it was just mystical to me to see a whole weekend from Thursday to Sunday where it's just constant sports from noon till till the end of the day and that was how i got into it and now it's my favorite sporting event in the world i love march madness i wouldn't miss it for the world and uh i'm so excited to talk about it now and, and leading all the way up until march patrick do you have any memories back from when you were a kid about march madness how did you get into it um just tell me a little bit about your own experience um okay so all right, I'll run I'll run it. I'll run it back this way with you. I am we are both 
former students of the University of South Carolina. We were both in school there when they went on their March Madness run. Um, I'm I'm repping the Gamecocks with the hat here. We're gonna talk some more Gamecocks later, but obviously I'm I'm the viewers can see I'm uh, wearing this Duke Blue Devils shirt as well. I am originally from the Boston area, Boston College, which is where my mom went to school. Didn't exactly have a uh, stellar basketball program. My dad went to UMass Lowell, and when he went there, they were actually a really good hockey school. They were, um, I think, they, go Riverhawks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think they were. He he told me they were either Division two or Division three champions, something along those lines, uh, at one point. Um, for me, my first actual memories of college hoops come from really young when um, I was probably. I don't know, five, six years old, maybe even slightly younger than that. I, I would have to actually go back and look it up to see when, when JJ Redick uh, was playing with Duke. But um, I don't, I don't remember the years specifically off the top of my head. I'm not a diehard Blue Devils fan, but I remember every Saturday my dad would go and get his haircut at the same barber shop by the same guy, the same time, usually right around noon on a Saturday, somewhere thereabouts, and typically. The, on the TV in the barbershop, Frankie, that was the name of the guy uh, who ran the place. He would have CBS on, and usually Duke was playing somebody. Didn't matter if it was like UNC, Wake Forest, whoever. Um, and I always remember like watching them. I don't, I didn't know any of the players. I didn't know who they were. I, I, I just remember watching the games and seeing how the people were acting on the sidelines and thinking how crazy it was. And uh, the year that Duke played Butler in the national title game and uh, (laughs) Gordon Hayward, former Boston Celtic. Oh yeah. Just barely misses that buzzer beater to, to win the natty. That's like, that's one of my other great memories. I actually, I got this shirt in the airport uh, on the way to Boston, my grandparents' house where we were staying at the time visiting them for some reason i don't remember why um and I, and we watched the final game there i remember watching out on my porch out on the porch with my mom and going like my heart sunk when he when he put the shot up and then i was like oh god we won we won um then there was like uh a few years later down the road with with grayson allen jaleel okafor quinn cook that was a great team uh, really, really awesome run down the stretch there, eventually winning the national title over Wisconsin. Um, and then there was the Zion years, which were like Zion, even when he was there, that reinforced my fandom a little bit of Duke because he was from South Carolina, which is where I grew up. Um, I saw him play in high school like once, luckily. Uh, we, we Somebody that we... Was it you who took the famous picture? Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I've seen, I, I saw Zion in a Love's gas station one time. Uh, <laughs> did not go up and, and say anything to him, but I took this like very blurry picture of him. And uh, it's been a joke among our, our baseball buddies ever since. But I absolutely did see Zion in that Love's gas station. What did you take that with? It looked like you took it with some like, iPhone Civil 4. War. iPhone, iPhone 4. 4, yeah it looked like a civil war era picture where you were also moving while you were trying to take it and you just couldn't get it right. I was well, like his back was to me. He was at the counter checking something out, but if he had turned around and just seen me taking a picture of him, I feel like he would have beaten my ass or something like no, that. You know? Why didn't you just be like, Hey man, 
nice to meet I you. I don't know. I guess I was still kind of starstruck. This was before he had actually gone to college. It would have been his senior year yeah. in high school. And I think he was playing at a at, at the neighboring high school that we did our, our practice at. And I don't know. He wasn't like a, a star yet, per se. But everybody yeah, he knew was. you had seen him on ESPN been like, hey, this dude's going to be he's like the top recruit in college basketball. Like people knew who he was. But not to the degree that they do now, obviously. I don't know. In the moment, I kind of froze. It, I guess I regret it now. No, 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 no. But, um, yeah, man, I, I, I enjoy college basketball. It's not my uh, – I watch more NBA than college hoops, typically. It's a longer season. I think that's partly why. Um, there is a lot less teams to follow, so it's a little bit easier to focus on um, the teams that – matter i guess whereas sometimes in college hoops like the fun of it is these surprise teams that you didn't really know much about having these fun runs at the end um but nevertheless i'm i'm stoked to have this as a part of uh our little podcast that we got going on here i I really appreciate march madness because when we were in school i think despite us being in the sec which is a notorious football conference a notorious baseball conference as well and i've i've always loved uh, going to the baseball games at, at South Carolina. I've been doing that since I was a kid. Uh, we'll continue to do that for a long time um, as well. But I think our, the best time on campus that we had was when our own school made that final four run, which we ended up losing uh, to Gonzaga in the semis. But that was like the vibes on campus had were never better, at least when we were there. And, and our football team had some okay years. We didn't really see like the, the greatest era of South Carolina football. Maybe that's still on the horizons, but um, yeah, man, I, it's there's something special about what college basketball does. It's different. Absolutely is. And and those were great times when, when we did make it to the final four back in 2017. So to everybody out there, um, thank you again for tuning in and let us take you on this journey to if you are one of those people who, is primarily a baseball football guy or maybe a hockey guy and you're going through a little bit of uh the dark times in sports as i referred to hockey's on uh, their all-star break right now so there's not as much going on tune into college basketball and let us guide you on this road to march in the final four to do that let me give a brief background about the ncaa tournament and the structure of it for anybody who doesn't know currently the field for the tournament consists of 68 teams that are chosen by a selection committee, very similar to the committee that we talked about and referenced during college football season. They obviously have a, a wider range of teams to pull from in college basketball, given that Division One college basketball is much larger than Division One college football. There's about 350 teams in Division One basketball, and I can name every single mascot, and I'm sure that we'll we'll have challenges like that. Throughout South Dakota the, State. Jackrabbits. That one's not even difficult. Uh, how about DePaul? The Blue Demons. Blue Demons. Um, San Antonio, UTSA. University of Texas, San Antonio, the Roadrunners. Yeah. Uh, right. Patrick, Cal- I mean, you could you could go on and on. You're not going to get me. We don't, don't want to get the – Oh, the Mustangs. Um, I'm trying to think of something different. Like, uh, Keep it on the back burner. Let me let me finish telling the people about, about the tournament here, and uh, maybe you can try and stump me by the, by the end of the podcast. This is going to turn into the name game. <laughs> it could very well as i was saying 68 teams um it's been like that since 2011 so 
there used to be just 64, and that was the case since 1985. Technically, 65 teams since 1985. Now they've added a couple extra teams to add for some play-in games. Those games are played a couple days before the actual first round starts. And so once those games have been decided, the field of 68 gets whittled down to 64. And that's really where the magic starts to happen. That field of 64 is broken up into four regions or four brackets, so to speak, of 16. And each bracket it has teams ranked 1 through 16 in it. The 1 seed will play the 16. The 2 seed will play the 15, 3, 14, so on and so forth. And then winner bracket A will face winner bracket B, winner bracket C versus bracket D. And the winner of that, or that's the final four, and the winner of that ultimately plays for the national championship. Now, as I mentioned, I kind of jumped into the next thing I was going to explain when you asked about the, the playing games. There are 32 conferences in college basketball. The winner of each conference tournament is automatically invited to the NCAA tournament, no matter how good or bad your conference is, whether you are in ACC, Big 12, SEC, or whether you are in the Big West or the Northeastern Conference, whatever it may be. If you win your conference tournament, you're automatically going to the NCAA tournament. The remaining 36 spots are really where that selection committee comes in. And they are going to choose those remaining 36 teams based on a variety of factors. And what a lot of people refer to that is, is a team's resume. Now, a team's resume can consist of their record, their strength of schedule, their efficiency metrics, which we'll get into, and then things like quadrant wins and losses. And I'll explain what the quadrants are. Um, there are four quadrants yeah, that determine basically the quality of your victory in college basketball. That makes though that's a little confusing to me because this hasn't always been used, right? It's it's sort of like a recently introduced concept. Yeah, well, a lot of these efficiency metrics have come around in the past like 15, 20, 25 years where we've we've been able to compile a little bit more data and it's it's led to these like various ranking systems. And so these these quadrant of victories kind of break down each team and their ranking. And it basically gives you some sense of a strength of victory like it, it it treats not it treats wins and values certain wins that you have like on the road or on neutral sites more and it, it basically says how impressive is your win it's it's just a college basketball's metric to do that and i guess since we're on the topic of it now let me jump right into it so i talked about how there are four quadrants quadrant one is the most impressive type of win you could have in college basketball it is defined as a home win versus a top 30 team, a neutral win versus a top 50 team, or a road win against a top 75 team. Quad two is a home win versus uh, number 31 through number 75 team in the country, neutral win versus 51 through 100, or a road victory versus 76 through 60. Now your quad three games are home wins against a 76 versus 160 team, a neutral victory versus a 101 versus 200 team, and an away win versus a 135 to 240 team. And then pretty much anything else worse than that is a quad four win or quad four loss, depending on if you won or lost the game. And uh, that's a quad four loss is as bad as it can get. I mean, you if you lose to a quad four team, that's considered as bad as it can be. And a quad four team in college basketball is like potentially a team that's ranked in the 300s out of like 350 college teams. So that is a very valuable stat that the committee looks at 
when they're deciding who to admit to the NCAA tournament. What it basically tells them is, can the team that they're looking at and evaluating to admit to the field of 68, can that team beat the teams that they're going to have to face in the NCAA tournament? Like, has, have they proven throughout the season that they can hang with the competition that they're going to see come March? And have they lost to competition that isn't going to be admitted to the tournament? You know, does that paint a little bit of a clearer picture? Yeah, I mean, I I get the concept of resume building and and you essentially want to have as many wins against good teams as possible and avoid losses against teams that you should beat, right? right. Um, you want to perform well in your conference for sure because, well, especially for power five teams, that's really, really crucial. But for the mid-major teams and for even teams lesser than that, you either have to win your conference or beat some pretty good teams along the way right right and so like let's take a look let's think about a mid-major team right you could play in a lesser conference roll to a super impressive record where you might only win or might only lose three or four games on the year and you have a far superior record to even like a top 25 team who might have lost eight nine even 10 games but just because they had an incredibly difficult schedule College basketball, since there's so many teams, as I mentioned, 350 teams, you need to find some sort of way to try and level the playing field. And so you can't just simply look at record like you would in, in a football because not everybody gets to play everybody. And so this breakdown of the quadrants just kind of proves who actually played the tough teams, who actually succeeded against the tough teams, who actually failed against against the bad teams. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I guess it, it makes more sense when you really break it down and dive into it. Um for me, it's hard to still like fully wrap my head around it because I feel like since there's so many college teams, like once you get past the teams receiving votes, like how much really separates the 53rd ranked team versus the 91st, you know, like what, what really is that difference looking like? So it's, it's wild to me that there's someone like, on a laptop every single week, like trying to rank out all 351 of these teams. I like doing that with the NFL every week is kind of fun to me, but that's, that's a 10% of that less than that. That's crazy. Yeah. And it's, it's not all linear either. Right. I mean, like you asked, what's the difference between the 53rd ranked team and the 91st ranked team? Well, it, it could be a variety of things. It could be pure record for in one instance, it could be strength of schedule in another, and it could be your efficiency metrics in, in scenario three. And that's the one thing that I haven't really talked about in detail yet. So what many of you probably see when you turn on ESPN and you see the, the rankings next to a specific team, or even if you just Google like ESPN college basketball top 25 rankings, you're looking at the AP poll. And now the AP poll is, is a good tool to use and good tool to look at, but that ranking system of those top 25 teams is determined by sports writers and broadcasters who just vote weekly on the top 25 teams. And I'm not saying that they're not knowledgeable about the sport. Believe me, they are. But they don't necessarily take into account all of the other factors that these other two ranking systems do that I'm about to mention here in a second. And those two ranking systems are the net rankings, and then Ken Palm rankings. I'll start with the net right now and give a brief synopsis of what it is. It's a ranking system that takes into account a variety of factors, but mainly includes the following. Your winning percentage, your game result, the strength of schedule, 
location where the game was that's where we factor in why a quad victory can be different depending on whether you're home neutral away your scoring margin so like how much you won a game by or how much you lost a game by and then your offensive and defensive efficiency and your offensive and defensive efficiency is where we get into ken palm so ken palm is short for ken pomeroy who is the founder of the ken palm ranking system and he was actually a former meteorologist who is now a writer for the athletic on college basketball and he devised this ranking system that charts each team in college basketball's efficiency both on the offensive and defensive end and it basically you are a very efficient team offensively the more points you score per 100 possessions um, the efficiency metrics factor in other things like tempo kind of luck factor your strength of schedule as well but you become a very efficient team offensively if you score a high amount of points per 100 possession per 100 possessions and if you give up a high amount of points per 100 defensive possessions you're very inefficient on defense and so with all these factors coming together that's its own ranking system and like one through 350 saying college basketball is based on your efficiency margin so like how much greater your offensive efficiency is than than your defensive efficiency you know so like how many more points do you score per 100 possession than you give up per 100 possession yeah per 100 possessions and that's how your efficiency metrics work right yeah that makes sense nba mm -hmm. uses similar stuff they right. just don't do like rankings they just seed people based off their wins and losses right i mean <laughs> you've got you've got more of an even playing field and fewer yeah, teams to, fewer to teams. analyze in the nba right so yeah that's where that comes into did play. you know that in japan they do uh, a high school baseball tournament where uh four thousand teams do, do play in it and it's single elimination i i've heard of this it sounds absolutely wild i i can't believe somebody's actually able to organize a four thousand team tournament but japan i know japan loves their baseball why don't we just do the same thing with all levels of college basketball that would be so fun <laughs> so you have you'll have like your number one team in the country playing the very worst team in division three be a yeah. slaughter <laughs> sure we could do it that way you don't necessarily have to you could do it by different portions of the country like they already have a like a, a north south midwest that sort of thing like why not just split it off that way and then eventually you'll have four really good teams playing against each other in the end yeah in the end that is probably the result you get but i think it's about creating competitive games throughout the tournament you know right like i yeah. think that that's that's what makes it special and and when, if you had the scenario in which you painted those at least the first couple rounds of what you described would just be these i think these slaughters that wouldn't really be entertaining and you wouldn't actually get a lot of people tuning in until you whittled the field down to roughly around 60 like we have it now anyway so i think that's the beauty of college basketball that it's like at the perfect number now where yeah a lot of times the one seeds will kind of crush the 16 seeds although we we have seen a couple 16 seeds pull off upsets and same thing with like twos and 15s but uh, by and large most of the games in the opening round are competitive and, and they stay competitive throughout so um those are basically the the items that people use for rankings and when i look at a a quad one through a quad four win or loss uh i'm going off of the net ranking so when i say like a quad one win is a home win versus a top 30 team I'm talking about a top 30 team in the net ranking system. And that will not always line up with the AP top 25 poll. For an example, 
look at two teams in the SEC right now. Alabama is ranked like 24 in the AP top 25, but they're a top 10 team in the net because they're extremely efficient offensively. They shoot a ton of threes. Their head coach, Nate Oates, is extremely into the analytics of the game, and he is adamant on either be shooting a, lay, a very high percentage layup at the rim or you take a three. Uh, because that's what analytics suggests in college basketball. So they're able to, they're a very high octane offense that scores a lot more per 100 possessions. And therefore their efficiency metrics are, are through the roof, especially on the offensive side. So they're much higher in the net rankings, but their record isn't quite as up to snuff. And that, that that's the reason that they're like 24 in the, in the top 25. On the converse, you have Kentucky, who just fell to Florida last night, but they are number 10 in the AP Top 25 poll, but they are right on the fringe of the net rankings. They're like 23 in the net because um, some of their underlying metrics aren't aren't as strong in their favor. But, you know, they're Kentucky, so like the sports writers are, you know, if Kentucky's even halfway decent, they're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, makes sense. So, Hot branding and all. Right. So all of those metrics and everything that I just discussed go into a team's resume and the, the committee will look at, at teams and, and decide who belongs in the tournament and who doesn't at the end of the year. At the end of the regular season, everybody plays 31 regular season games and then you play your conference tournament. And after that, the committee seeds everybody and decides who gets to play in the tournament and who doesn't. Now, I've talked about resumes, I've talked about rankings. I want to refer to one more significant term here. And that is called the bubble. In my own words, I define the bubble as this metaphorical gray area in the rankings where a resume contains both positive and negative points, but it's not an overwhelming case that a certain team should be admitted or left out of the tournament. So it's they're, they're in this right on the fringe, basically, between making it not, and they have good points and bad points. So the resume may be good quality wins up in quad one and quad two, maybe some bad losses in quad three, quad four. Maybe they have a really good re record, but their strength of schedule is poor or vice versa. And so you'll hear us use the term bubble a lot throughout this, uh, this podcast and throughout our road to the final four. Ollie Bubbles. That's Ollie you, Bubbles. Uh, Ollie Bubbles. That might be my alter ego come March. We'll we'll see about that. We'll come back to that. Holy, I, lo I love it. Holly Bubbles. <laughs> We're going to so, start a clothing line. A clothing line called Polly Bubbles, huh? Yeah, I, I don't know what, what you're going to be wearing yet. We'll figure it out. <laughs> oh, geez. I, uh, I shudder to think what that might be. But anyway, <laughs> so Patrick, I hope you have a little bit of a better understanding about some of the metrics and everything that goes into to seeding and ranking these teams. With that being said... We are going to actually dive in and talk about some of the teams that have really impressed so far this year in college basketball and not just give you the overlying um, like background information on, on the sport and how things are ranked. And so I want to jump into that now. This is a segment that I'll be doing pretty much weekly is I'm going to be ranking my top four teams. Basically, these would be my number one seeds if the NCAA tournament started today. And I'll make a case for, for each one that I rank. And so for this one, in the fashion that the NCAA tournament does it, I'm going to release my current number one seed right now. The number one overall team in the country, in my opinion, is currently the Houston Cougars. Now, if you haven't gotten a chance to watch this team play, you absolutely should. This is their first year in the Big 12. They are previously an American conference team. And Big 12 is a huge jump from the American. But Houston has passed with flying color so far this season. 
19 and two overall. They are the number one team in the net rankings. They have the best efficiency efficiency margin in Ken Palm. And a large part of that is because they are the second best offensive rebounding team in the country. They get offensive rebounds on 39% of their possessions. Now, why is that important? That's important because that allows them more opportunities to score points per their 100 possessions. A possession is only ends in college basketball after a made basket or a defensive rebound. So since they're so good at getting offensive rebounds, they continuously get second, third, fourth chances on the same possession. It maximizes the chance that they're able to score. And Ken Palm loves, loves that when you can crash the glass like that. And that's been a staple of Kelvin Sampson's team, Kelvin Sampson, the head coach at Houston. This is a team that was in the final four during the COVID year or 2021, the, the first year after after COVID. And then they made a run to the Elite Eight the following year before Villanova knocked them off. So it's been one of the most relevant programs in the past five years. And they arguably have the best team that they've had in that five-year stretch. So they're currently the number one overall team in the country in terms of the net rankings, but they are not the overall number one team in the country, according to the AP top 25 pool. Well, wait, for for, for Houston, I mean, they've got like Jamal Sheed, is so damn good. Jamal Shed. Yeah, Jamal yeah. Shed. Yeah, he's he's incredible. Um, he's taking a lot of shots for the team, and, and they're trusting him with the ball in his hands, and um, it's helping them a ton. Uh, they, they've also got like LJ Cryer on there as well, um, helping them out. Um, like their experience too. They they've been in deep tournament runs the last couple of years as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm glad you brought up LJ Cryer because he has been instrumental for them he's averaging like 15 or 16 a game this year and he's a transfer from baylor so big pickup in the transfer portal there for houston and he was actually recently just added to um the wooden award top 20 watch list so he's technically a top like 20 candidate for the wooden award the most prestigious award a college basketball player can receive it's basically the heisman of college basketball so i'm glad you did bring up those guys um some other quick things about Houston before I do move on. Uh, seven and two in quad one games, two and oh in quad two, and they have not lost a game in quad three or quad four. So, like, extremely, extremely impressive resume. Well, if you have them ranked number one, why, why don't you have a team like UConn as your top overall team who won the national championship last year and is having a great season, or even a Purdue who's a national powerhouse and, and Zach Eddy is playing arguably the best ball of his career so which one would you rather me talk about next because i got purdue and uconn at at, at two and three i can talk about either one okay give me the case um wow okay you don't even have uconn too damn all right uh start with purdue start with purdue so for me purdue it comes down to the fact that they are they're number two in the net so they're just behind houston in terms of those metrics They are second in offensive efficiency, but their defensive efficiency is outside the top 10. So they're a little bit lacking in that regard. But you mentioned everything, everything runs through Zach Eady, and he is so talented. He's the defending Wooden Award winner. He won it last year, and he's like a clear favorite again to win it this year. Only one player in NCAA tournament history or NCAA college basketball history has won the wooden award back-to-back years. Patrick, do you happen to know who that is? Trivia time. Take a, take a guess. Repeat it one more time. 
only one college basketball player in the history of the sport has won the Wooden Award in back-to-back years. Do you know who that player is? Oh, I feel like it's got to be Christian Leitner, right? It is not Christian Leitner. <laughs> no, is go, it uh, Al Horford? I, no, I can give you – I don't – if those are your guesses, I don't think that you're going to get it. But have you seen the – um survive in advance 30 for 30 on the 1983 nc State. oh Park. ralph sampson there you go got it ralph okay, sampson cool. out of virginia where he's the only one to do it he won it in 82 and 83 and zach Eady has a phenomenal chance to do it Horford was year. a sarcastic guess by the way that was you said it so seriously serious. though and you're a celtics fan so i thought ah maybe he's it's because i'm a serious. good actor paul that's all <laughs> you uh, are believe you had me on that one uh no it's i wasn't legitimately thinking al horford leitner was kind of a legitimate guess though leitner's not a bad one he certainly had a phenomenal college career but but yeah ralph sampson the only one to go back to back um but getting back to purdue very similar numbers if you break down their quadrants seven and two in quad one five and oh in quad two and uh and no losses in quad three or quad four i think houston's probably a little bit of a better team top to bottom i think like if you take out zach Eady, things get a little bit murky for Purdue, but he is such an impactful player, averaging 23 and 11 this year. Seven foot four. Dude had a double double last night against Northwestern, which was his 54th career double double for Purdue. That's the most in team history. So he is so good. I just think the reason I can't put him above Houston is like, let's say Edie gets into foul trouble or, or something like that, or if he does have an injury, I don't, I don't think that like, this Purdue team can sustain a loss like that. And so I think Houston's case is a little bit better in that regard. And Houston's a little bit better rebounding the ball offensively than Purdue is, although Purdue is still top 10 in offensive rebounding. So that's that's my case where I have Houston a slight edge above Purdue at this current moment. Sorry. Am, I, am I justified in saying that Edie is like the Bo Nicks of college basketball? I feel like he's been playing for a decade. How old is he, like 30? Uh, this is his fourth year. This is fourth year, so so now, really, I, yeah, he's got one more year of eligibility. I'm pretty sure as well. Wow. Okay, I thought he. Yeah, it's only year four. Longer. Well, the thing about him is like he has beefed up so much in over the past four years. If you look back at his first season, which was the 2020-2021 year, if I remember correct, like yeah. the dude's a twig, and and you look at him now, he's he's seven four two eighty five. Well. My only other argument against Purdue is like just looking at their resume, right? They have wins against Gonzaga, Tennessee, Marquette, Alabama, Arizona, who was the number one team at the time, uh, Illinois now as well. Um, Like they've beaten all these really, really, really good teams. Does Houston have that same like checklist in terms of teams they've beaten along the way? So, I mean, Houston's got a win against ranked BYU. It's number 22. Texas Tech is number 15. Their only loss or one of their two losses is on the road at number 12, Iowa State. You got Purdue's losses have come against Northwestern, who's unranked, as well as Nebraska, who's also unranked. So I think probably Purdue might have more wins against ranked teams, but Houston doesn't have like that that as bad of a loss not to say that yeah. a loss to northwestern and Nebraska two conference teams as, and they were close games as bad yeah um also a win against uh top 25 dayton as well on houston's resume so 
I think that that all is why, again, it's a very slim margin. I think we're splitting hairs at, at this point. But, yeah, those are my top two teams in the country. Now but tell you me about UConn, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned the defending national champs. That's exactly what they are. The Huskies are my number three team in the country. They're currently fifth in the net. They are third in the efficiency metrics in Ken Palm, third in offensive efficiency. Um, they returned 38% of its scoring from last year. Some big returners on, on the UConn side of things. They got Donovan Klingon. Um, Tristan Newton has basically led them in almost every offensive category this year. Um, Alex Caravan as well. Those were all guys that played meaningful minutes on the national championship team last year. And they're significant contributors again to this 2023-2024 team. With UConn, the reason I got them number three, I'd say they do have impressive wins on their resume. I, I just don't know top to bottom. I don't think that the Big East is can quite stack up to the Big Ten and the Big 12. I, I think that there is a little bit of a discrepancy between this version of the Big East and the Big Ten, Big 12. Like, if you look in the Big 12 uh, with Houston, maybe there's one or two exceptions at the bottom with, like, your Oklahoma States, for example. But almost everybody in that conference could beat anybody on any given night. You catch them on the right night playing at home or something like that. You could lose to anybody. And I don't think that that's quite the case. I mean, if you look near the bottom of the, of the big East, you have teams like Georgetown DePaul that are just like absolute doormats. And so for that reason, I can't quite put UConn on the Purdue Houston level yet. I'm open to hearing an argument and there are certainly the defending national champs, but I can't, I can't quite put them there. Just a couple other brief points on UConn. Uh, you'll see kind of a similar track record to the top two teams. They're seven and two in quad one, three and oh in quad two, and they don't have a quad three or quad four loss. So very similar numbers. Um, those sound pretty repetitive from our top two teams. It's because they are, and there's not much separating these squads. I, I really do think that like these top three, I'm very, very comfortable with. Um, my number four team, I do have them like, definitively at four but i have a wide margin a wide gap between my top three teams and this team and my last team for my final number one seed as of right now so to speak i have the arizona wildcats uh, they are currently actually the third ranked team in the net so the net rankings have them higher than uconn um, ken palm has them as the fourth rated team in terms of efficiency metrics but where they fall short in my eyes is looking at their quality wins versus losses they're six and three in quad one, so they're a game worse compared to the seven and two rate, uh, record of Houston and Purdue and UConn in that first quadrant. And they're the only team in this top four list that I have that has a loss in either quad three or quad four. They have a quad three loss. And I can't remember who it's to off the top of my head, but they're the only team with a loss outside of the first two quadrants. In fact, they're the only team on this list that has a loss to a team that's not in Quad, that's not considered quadrant one so for that reason i can't put arizona any higher than four but certainly a very talented team and they like purdue come into this season with a chip on their shoulder both of these teams had devastating first round losses in the ncaa tournament last year purdue lost to a 16th seeded fairly dickinson team who was the smallest team by average height in the ncaa tournament field and of course Purdue had Zach Eady last year, seven foot four beast, and they found a way to lose that game. And then Arizona dropped their opening round matchup to 15th seeded Princeton. 
So Arizona and Purdue both return guys. Arizona, some of their big hitters are guys like Pell Larson, Umar Balo, and then they picked up a huge transfer in Caleb Love, who transferred from North Carolina in the portal. But both those teams got a lot to prove. Um, Patrick, those are my top four teams. Some other honorable mentions. I maybe would have had North Carolina on this list, but they just had a bad loss to Georgia Tech. Tennessee could have made a case, but of course they lost our South Carolina Gamecocks, who we'll talk about in a minute. And um, Auburn is pretty good efficiency-wise as well. Like their efficiency metrics line up with these top four teams. But Auburn has not beaten a team um, in a quad one game yet. I thought that was pretty jarring. And we're we're two-thirds of the way into the season. They don't have a quad one win yet. That's uh, pretty alarming. So uh, any final thoughts, any opinions on, on the four that I have? Any team that jumped out to you that you think uh, maybe you could make a case for that I, I didn't mention at all yet? Um, The way I look at it is <laughs> with the recent losses that some of these other teams have had that are just outside of your top four, like a UNC, uh, like a Tennessee, to our South Carolina Gamecocks. Uh, um, it's hard to really say like, hey, we're missing these guys, like obviously. Um, I, I would say that Wisconsin is probably like the next team that I would consider, and they actually play That's a good Purdue, one. Purdue this weekend. They're actually first in the Ken Palm rankings in offensive efficiency in, in the Big Ten. They're better than Purdue in that metric. Um, they're a really, really talented team. They, they still play, um, you know, defensive ball as well. Greg Gard's team, they've won nine of their last 10, 10 games uh, since Arizona beat them back in December. They've got six quad one wins, which is the second most nationally. Like the only reason why their resume doesn't quite stack up is because they have some pretty poor losses to the record as well. Um, they, they lost to Penn state. They just lost to Nebraska. Nebraska it does not have a great uh, year so far this year. They, they've got some uh, pretty questionable losses, but their other losses are to Providence and Tennessee and, Providence is is a pretty solid team. They just took uh, UConn to the ropes, and uh, we all know how good Tennessee is as well. Absolutely, Wisconsin is the uh, the other team that I probably could have thrown out here. Um, they're in the top ten, and you're right; they have a huge game against Purdue. Um, admittedly, I haven't watched too much Wisconsin basketball this year. The, definitely a team I need to tune into a little bit more. I think I've seen them play. I think I caught like the tail end of that Penn State loss, and like I saw them beat i think it was ohio state pretty handily but i'm looking forward to that that game against purdue this weekend keep an eye out for aj store and that one sophomore nasty really really we'll good. do we'll do really really we'll good. do who do you have winning that game by the way you want to dive into predictions for those yeah i'll give a quick prediction on that um and then maybe highlight some other other key games to watch out for um i'll take wisconsin in that one i know i said i haven't watched a ton of their games yet but they are at home i think home court advantage in college basketball is so so important i mean the fans are like right there on top of you and it can get loud and it can get intimidating so i'll take wisconsin at home and another reason is purdue just got taken down to the wire went into overtime against northwestern last night um, on their home arena it was actually northwestern was threatening to sweep that season series as i mentioned northwestern beat Purdue in their first matchup of the year. So maybe Purdue is going to come out a little bit sluggish. Um, they've only got like two days rest, got to travel. They're on the road here at another top 10 team. I think it is uh, a perfect spot for a letdown. Uh, I'll take Wisconsin in an upset there. The uh, offensive slugfest there. Might have a barn burner. Yeah, we'll see. 
should be a good one. Um, Besides that game, what's your favorite game that you're looking forward to this weekend? For me, you know, I think it'd be easy to say North Carolina Duke just because it's North Carolina Duke, but I'm actually going to go Houston, Kansas here. And Houston, as I said, is my number one team in the country right now. But what gets really interesting is they got to go on the road into Kansas here. And Kansas is not white at their like typical level. I think that we see there. I think that they're in like the second tier of college basketball teams this year, but they haven't lost a game at home yet. And they, it is historically one of the toughest places to play in the country. Bog Allen Fieldhouse is. So that's going to be a huge road test for Houston. I think that they're the better team top to bottom, but we'll see how Kansas reacts at home. Um, and one of Kansas's best players, Kevin McCullough, did not play in their game against Oklahoma State. We'll have to monitor that injury status to see if he's good to go against Houston this Saturday. Uh, that game against Oklahoma State, I believe it was last night that he sat out. So huge one there. Um, and then, of course, UNC Duke is UNC Duke. And then the only the other game of note is uh, Tennessee, Kentucky. Both those teams coming off losses this week. So that'll be interesting. No love for uh, Iowa State Baylor. That's a good one, but I, I can't quite put it in this in this tier. Both those teams sitting outside the top 10. All those other games that I mentioned, Houston, Kansas, top 10 game, UNC Duke. Uh, Tennessee, Kentucky, I guess you'd have a point there. Kentucky's like technically 10 in the AP top 25 poll, but they're going to fall pretty quickly um, after losing to unranked Florida. And uh, Purdue-Wisconsin, obviously, a, a great matchup. Do you feel like that Tennessee-Kentucky game could be kind of a, um, let's call it a um, fork in the road for both teams, depending on the matchup for the rest of the season? I think more so for Kentucky, right? Like, I think Kentucky got some impressive wins in the non-conference, but I think they're kind of searching in – in sec play i think they already have three losses yeah a m um, you know, florida and and the cox and now south carolina will be ranked um and we are going to talk about them in just a second south carolina is likely going to be ranked after they knocked off tennessee uh on tuesday but florida's unranked a m is unranked like you know those are all unranked teams right there and you know i think you got to prove yourself really and they're not even beating the teams in theory that they should beat and that game against Florida was on their home court. So I do think it is far more of a fork in the road for them. Like a loss to Tennessee here, even though Tennessee is very good, considering that the Wildcats lost to Florida earlier in the week, that could push them down to like the 20s in the top 25. Well, you mentioned losses on your home court. Tennessee just had one of those. Indeed, <laughs> like, they did. Like they're, they're both those teams aren't really similar situations right now, honestly. Yeah, I mean, you make a fair point there. Um, I, I guess I'm just saying... Right now, I like South Carolina more than I like Florida. And Florida is not a bad team, but I think losing to South Carolina on your home court is not quite as bad as losing to the Florida Gators on your home court. Again, not taken away from either team. Given that we're on this topic, do you want to talk a little bit about the Gamecocks? Yeah. Uh, what specifically would you like for me to talk about regarding to them what because I, I've been going to a lot of the games this year I've been watching whatever games that I haven't been going to I've been trying to pay more attention to them just because um, I've liked the feel and the energy sort of around the team since the beginning of the season it felt a little bit different just to start the year in terms of like not necessarily people being optimistic it was just there was like 
there was something there where I feel like everybody had their eyes on the team for whatever reason. Um, maybe it was because of a slightly disappointing football season. I'm not sure. Um, but what, what specifically are you curious about? Or do you want just kind of like my general thoughts? Yeah, so I want to go back and forth and, and get your general thoughts. And I, I want I want to talk about kind of what they put out on paper so far. And then, you know, like you alluded to, get the feel of the atmosphere in, in Colonial Life Arena. Because I am making the South Carolina Gamecocks my first team on the rise. This will be a segment that we do on the college basketball side of things for this podcast. The only qualification that I have to make my team on the rise pick of the week is that you just have to be outside of the AP top 25 poll, um, a team that's not necessarily getting national love in terms of the rankings, but has a pretty good resume and has been playing really good basketball over the past couple of weeks. And you can call us homers if you want, but South Carolina fits that to a T. They're uh, jumped up to 39th in the net rankings. They're still a little bit behind on Ken Palm in terms of their efficiency. It's only 46 there. But listen to their, their quadrant wins. They're 4-2 and two in quad one, 3 and 3-0 oh in quad two, and they're 10-1 and one in quad three slash quad four combined. That only The only quad three loss that they have was to Georgia, who's not even like a slouch. You know, Georgia's like okay at least. I think they got like seven or eight losses on the year, something like that. So it's not terrible. Patrick, you, like you said, have been there in person a lot. First, give me the feel around this team, because this team was picked to finish last in the SEC, 14th out of 14th. And Lamont Paris is only in his second year there. Give me the feel, just the buzz, the atmosphere in terms of Columbia talking about them and what you see, feel, and hear in Colonial Life Arena when you attend these games in person. Well, look, you, you have to think about it um, contextually, okay? So the women's basketball team at South Carolina is phenomenal. They have been for a long time. And they are now very well known uh, in both facets of college basketball, both women's and men's, for the support they have, the, the sellouts that they have repeatedly. And the fans lo- will – Listen, South Carolina fans are going to support any team that's good to to their heart's content. They'll even support any team that's bad to their heart's content, right? They'll show up regardless. But they love, love this women's basketball team. They love Don Staley. Don is like, Don is like borderline Coach K territory to Duke to what she means to South Carolina at this point. And that's like, that may sound weird coming from uh, a male, but like it shouldn't because just look at like the impact it's had around the state of South Carolina. I see so many more. I, I work a lot of high school basketball games in, in this, in this uh, area doing various things. And the amount of girls that I've seen get involved in the sport, just in South Carolina alone and outside of the capital city as well has been drastic the last handful of years. Um, Asia Wilson born and bred in Columbia, right? Uh, we also have uh, Leah Boston who, who, who was a number one pick who came from Massachusetts actually. Uh, and then we also have uh, Joyce Edwards coming to South Carolina as well this coming year. Who's, who's the number two ranked recruit in the country. She has, uh, she's from Camden, South Carolina. Um, uh, Malaysia full Wiley was, was a really impressive freshman this year. Who, who's also from South Carolina. Um, the feel around the women's basketball program has been this way for a long time. 
And the men's basketball team outside of the year where we went to the final four in South Carolina has kind of been um, a hot button for controversy before, uh, before Lamont Paris really came in. Frank Martin was a very, is a very intense man and a very intense coach. Uh, I made eye contact with that man once in my life through a conversation at press conference. And it was the most aggressive and intense eye contact I've ever shared with a human being. Nobody else even comes close. It was insane. I felt like he was staring into my soul, talking to me and like evaluating every bit of me as a person. And um, it, it's helped him bring Kansas state to a final four. It's helped him bring South Carolina to a final four, but there were certain things he did that kind of rubbed people the wrong way, not just within the team at South Carolina, but outside of it as well. Um, in his last couple of years with the team, I had conversations, not just with people you and I both know, but with other people who work in the industry around here and who work in basketball for a living, who kind of shared the sentiment of like, his time is coming to an end for one reason or another. And South Carolina wasn't great last year. We were, they were actually pretty bad <laughs> to be, to be fair, like pretty bad. And it was uh, rough. It was, it was bad. It was bad. And, um, <laughs> There was a couple of guys that stayed around from that team, Michi Johnson, uh, to name one. Um, and now this year, things are totally different. And it kind of started with that preseason tournament, not preseason, but early season tournament at the beginning of the year, uh, where we ended up beating Grand Canyon in the final out in Phoenix, which isn't really a, a home game for Grand Canyon, but it's damn near close. And then you had the win against Notre Dame, which that was kind of like a statement at the time in a neutral site. Um, Clemson on the road, close loss. And then we started having these home games and, and the crowds weren't awesome, right? Our first SEC home game against Mississippi State, I would say there was like maybe 60% crowd, maybe. Um, there was actually, I've never seen this before in a, in a game of any kind where at one point there was a message on the video board for um, – fans from the upper bowl to come and take seats in the lower bowl because the game's on tv you can't have empty seats so right. so all of a sudden all these fans start like heading to the exits and twirling back down to the i've never seen that at a game before like you would never see that at uh like a baseball game you would never see that at a south carolina football game um credit to those fans though they got the cheap tickets up in the, the upper deck and tickets got were in the lower level yeah, tickets were like five bucks for that game. They were just trying to get everybody Wild. to come. And then we followed that up with a loss against Alabama. Uh, they had the the road win against Mizzou after that. Uh, loss against UGA at home, which was really disappointing. And and the crowd was better then, and the atmosphere was good. But then we now we've won four in a row since then. Arkansas on the road, uh, UK at home. Uh, which I'll talk about in a second, Missouri at home, and then Tennessee on the road. The atmosphere for the game against Kentucky was special. Um, there was a record number of student tickets sold for that game, and the vibes were off the charts. Like, people were going crazy. And there was a lot of Kentucky fans there as well. Um, it was not like, a, a fully dominant South Carolina crowd. I, I would actually go as far as to say it was about, like, 75-25, honestly. Like, there were moments in the game – where the Kentucky faithful in attendance were really loud and were kind of dominating the ambient noise, if you will. And then 
somebody for South Carolina would make a, a huge play and, and shut them up almost immediately. Um, this South Carolina team, I think, is different this year, not in the sense of fan support. Like, the fan support is going to be there if you're winning. If we start losing games, people won't show up. It's that simple. Um, whereas what I'm seeing is what makes us different from other teams is it's a belief within the group, within the players, that each of these guys is better than what the general consensus outside of the room is. These guys know each other and they expect a lot from each other and they push each other. And Lamont pushes them as well. And he does it the right way. He He's not, um, he's not like pounding a, a, a nail with a hammer. He's um, trying to put these guys in the right position. He's trying to uplift them. Okay. And, and instill confidence in them and it's working. Um, they're an awesome defensive team they can play man they can play zone they've got a lot of guys that can switch and guard multiple positions um michi johnson is is not the most efficient scorer he has streaks where he can be really hot and light up the scoreboard and he's dynamic when that happens but he's not efficient like i said like he'll also have games where he really doesn't play well um but when he's not doing that he he can do other things which lamont kind of spoke to uh, after the win against tennessee where he said you know, he's a creator for us. He's really good defensively and this and that. And when he's not there, they have other guys step up like a, like a BJ Mack who they brought in from the transfer portal from Rawford, like a um, Talon Cooper, who they brought in from the transfer portal from Minnesota, who's been a revelation as a point guard, essentially. And um, a, a secondary ball handling option from Michi. And then you pair that as well with, the likes of a Colin Murray Boyles, who's actually a local product from AC Florida high school, played a senior ball elsewhere, uh, prep school ball essentially, but is now playing with the Gamecocks. He's awesome. And, and Miles Studi, who, who was hurt, came back into the lineup and played pretty well against Tennessee. Um, I was really curious to see if he was going to actually make it back into the starting five because um, the Cox had, <laughs> I mean, they beat Kentucky without him. They had won three straight, you know? Um, but he came right back in and, and was and was pretty good as well. Um, they're one of the most experienced teams in college basketball in terms of like actual seasons and games played. And I think that's a huge advantage to them. Um, they actually replicate in a lot of ways the way some NBA teams are built in terms of like size, switchability, having multiple guys from different positions that can shoot. Um they're fun to watch, man. It's a it's a different different team than I remember South Carolina being. And there's a buzz in the city about the team. Like we we've we've had two sellouts in a row. People are showing up. Um yeah, I was actually I was working a, a local high school game um the night that we had Tennessee on the road. And <laughs> about half the people in the gym had the game on their phone. I love that. I love that. Like at least half the people. Um it was pretty cool, man. I, I'm I'm stoked to see what happens with the Gamecocks. Um there's a lot of season left and, and they're gonna have to play Tennessee again. Um they're gonna have to play against the likes of like Auburn on the road as well. That's gonna be a really tough game. It's not gonna be easy. Uh they still have for sure the crux of their conference schedule ahead of them. Um, but getting wins against UK and 
Tennessee are huge. And I don't want to say we're guaranteed to make the tournament because I don't think that we are quite yet, but we certainly have a great resume right now. We just got to keep winning games. Absolutely, dude. I, I think I think it would take something monumental for us not to make the tournament at this point. Like the way I look at it with them is with their wins against Tennessee and Kentucky and then a couple decent non-conference wins like Grand Canyon, as you mentioned, they just need to beat the teams they should beat down the stretch, and that should be enough to get them in. But I don't think that this team is looking at things like that. Like, I don't think Lamont, that's the message from Lamont Paris. I don't think that that's how any of these players on this roster are looking at it. I loved your remark that they're a group of guys who just kind of, I guess, shuts off the outside noise that says that they're not supposed to be this good, but they have this internal belief that they are. And I think that that's exemplified with the fact that I think everybody thought that they were going to be ranked after the win against Kentucky, which happened last week, if I remember correctly. And they're still left on the outside of the top 25. I think just barely, I think technically they might've been the 26th team. Yeah. I will say, I don't think they give a damn whether they're ranked or not or how high they're ranked. If they are, I don't think they, I don't think any player in that locker room cares because at this point, like they know how good they are and nobody's given them the respect yet to where now, even if they are ranked, it's like, all right. But in reality, like we still think we're better than that number, you know? For sure, dude. But where I was going with it is they, they might not care at the end of the day. They just care about winning basketball games, but I still think that some of them use it as a chip on their shoulder, you know, like I, sure. I, I can, I can see that this team plays that way. For they sure. have the attitude and the emotion on defense they play defense so well. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a team that's feeding off of each other. And it does start with Lamont Paris. I think the job that he's done now in just two years there is phenomenal. I, right now, I, I, somebody find me who someone out there who's got a better resume for coach of the year. Cause again, this team is supposed to pit, finish last in the sec had a horrendous year last year. Lamont gets a couple big transfers. Like you mentioned into Lon Cooper and BJ Mack. And all of a sudden now, we're just a game back of Alabama and Studi on top too. of the SEC and Studi as well. And we're about to be ranked, you know, they're on pace to go to only their 10th NCAA tournament in <laughs> school history. Yeah. Basketball I, school. Dude. Yeah. And we haven't been back to the tournament since we were in the final four in 2017. Like find me a coach who's done a better job than Lamont Paris. So South Carolina, congratulations. You are the fifth and long pods, Paul Kashak, the commissioner's first official team on the rise. Congratulations. Well done. I'm looking forward to you not being eligible for this list going forward because you're going to be in the top 25. I'm looking for uh, potentially pushing for a top 15 ranking. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but a win over Georgia this weekend. And I think you could see this team pushing up towards the top 15. Final remark, Patrick, where do you think that they could be ranked, assuming that they knock off Georgia this Saturday? Uh, well, knocking off is, is a interesting phrase to use. Beating, it's a big, beating, it's a beating. Yeah. Sorry. It's a big revenge game. Uh, I was at that game against UGA and UGA was, they played better than us for most of the game. Like they deserved that win. There was some questionable officiating in that game as well. That, um, definitely had some folks riled up, but, uh, by and large that game, I think UGA deserved to win and they were playing it at our place. They're going to have the crowd advantage in this game, especially against us, who is like 
I don't know if everybody outside of the state is familiar with this, but South Carolina and Georgia don't exactly like each other most of the time, most of the time. And uh, we just had two huge wins in the last couple of weeks. I think fans are really going to show up. This is a huge trap game for us. And I think it's going to be one of the most difficult games we have to play uh, for the rest of our schedule. Um, I, I think if we win, I don't think we would be top 15. I could see us sneaking inside of the top 20, maybe being yeah. like a, a 19, yeah, something I, around I there. Like that. That's a good thought. Yeah. But if we lose, I think we'll probably, if we lose against UGA, I think we'll probably be like 24th or 23rd. Yeah, that makes sense. It's all pretty good there. I'm, I'm generally in agreement with that. Top 15 might be a little bit ambitious, but nonetheless, that will conclude the college basketball side of things. On the flip side of the break, we're going to come back and talk a little bit of the NBA. Stick with us on the fifth and long pod. All right. Welcome back, fifth and long fans. Um, <laughs> fifth and long hoops edition. Um, Patrick Damar here. Paul the commission K Shack on the flip side. Uh, just talk a lot of college stuff, college hoops. Um, man, I I'm I'm really buzzing about college basketball now. Oh, this is getting exciting. I'm I'm gonna force myself to start paying more attention to some of these other teams, especially with all these great games this weekend. Um, otherwise, though, on the NBA side of things, this is kind of an interesting time of year for the NBA. Um, the all-star reserves were just announced actually this, this evening. So this is a, this is brand new as we're recording this. Um, let's go through the starters first for both teams for the East. These were announced uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, Giannis is going to be the captain of the East squad. Joel Embiid, Tyrese Halliburton, Damian Lillard, Jason Tatum, Katie, Shea Gilgis, Alexander, and Jokic. That is a insane starting five. Actually. Um, any one of those players could, drop like 50 in a night with the maybe with the exception of lebron crazy to think that lebron might be the the worst scorer on that team right now and he's still pretty damn great um i kind of like the west roster better I, you know a little bit more about the nba but i like the combination there with luka and Jokic. What, what do you think who, who do you think zach you think they got the better roster i i like their starting five uh Embiid probably is Embiid and halliburton probably both will not play in this game Halliburton actually might I think Halliburton probably will but Embiid just got diagnosed with a torn meniscus uh today so he's gonna miss some time he'll probably sit out the all-star break uh and then some more games as well um the reserves for these two teams got announced we we got some some snubs to talk about a little bit as well um we're not gonna do too deep of a dive into this uh I I don't necessarily disagree with most of these uh selections here um Bam Adebayo Paolo Bancaro makes his first um, all-star game in his second year in the league, former number one overall pick. Uh, former Duke Blue Devil as well. Let's go Paolo. Uh, Jalen Brown makes his third all-star game. Huge for Jalen, especially after signing that um, extremely lucrative extension in the offseason. Um, second best player player on the best team in the league. You got you to gotta let him in. And he's having an awesome season. He's been playing great ball this year. Uh, Jalen Brunson makes his first all-star team Tyrese Maxey makes his first all-star team uh stoked for both of those guys especially Brunson um who has kind of reinvigorated the Knicks fan base uh when when that move was made there was some questions around it because his dad works for the team and and um this that and the third but 
Knicks fans are, are certainly happy right now with the way the team is going. Um, you also have Donovan Mitchell making the all-star game and Julius Randle uh, for the East. Uh, some snubs from the East side of thing, uh, things. Trey Young is probably the biggest name uh, that that misses out. But if you take him out, then you have to put in – or if you put him in, you have to take out either Donovan Mitchell or, or Tyrese Maxey or, or Jalen Brunson. And I don't think that was going to happen for either of those guys. Um, coaches pick these reserves, and they're looking at – a lot more things than just fans are and, and the casuals and whatnot. So I don't disagree with that selection. Um, on the West side, the reserves, uh, Devin Booker, Steph Curry, the chef himself, Anthony Davis, Anthony Edwards, love Anthony Edwards, uh, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, and Carl Anthony Towns. Shout out to Carl Anthony Towns uh, for getting back into the All-Star game. Um, notably absent from the West. This is where things got a little bit more interesting. Um, Alperin Sangoon from the Houston Rockets. He's having a phenomenal year. Um, talented young player. He is Chet Holmgren who might win the rookie of the year this year. Yeah, I've heard a lot of good things about Chet there in Oklahoma city. He is a phenomenal player, man. If you have not tuned into the Oklahoma city thunder, you definitely should. They're one of the youngest teams in the NBA and they're one of the best teams in the NBA as well. Um, they're near the top of the Western conference as it currently stands. They're led by Shea Gilgis and Alexander, who uh, 100% should be an MVP candidate. No doubt about it. Absolutely. He is a phenomenal player and um, is a big part of the reason why they have the second best record in the Western Conference. Um, hey, Patrick, Paul, before before you move on, if I, if I could ask a question or two quick about Chet. What, yeah. Um, what about his game is is giving him so much success this year? Because I know he was able to do a lot of things in college. He was able to shoot a little bit. Obviously, he could play down low. Um, what's he doing well that that has him making a case for rookie of the year? Well, the thing about well, you know, there there, there are other players that are more talented in the league. Really, the biggest argument uh, against him for rookie of the year, people will say Victor Wembanyama. Obviously, that's that's a great choice. Um, Jaime Jaquez Jr. from the Miami Heat is also having a phenomenal season. He's been spectacular. Um, and he's not a name that gets mentioned a ton because he wasn't like a lottery pick. He wasn't the first overall pick like Chet and like Wemby were. But Wemby's having a great year. Um, he, he probably will not win Rookie of the Year. Uh, Chet probably will right now if he keeps going at this rate. The Spurs are a really bad team. And Wembyana doesn't have a lot around him. I think people just expected him to automatically make the Spurs like a better team than they are <laughs> but uh they're doing a lot of weird things there Jeremy Sohan was was the point was the point guard for a while and he's not a point guard like at all um but then Webinyama has some moments where like the other night he, he did a sham god move going into the paint and scored and that was like wait dude you're like seven foot four you're not supposed to be able to do that that's ridiculous why can you dribble like Chris Paul, but also shoot, but also do all the other things you would expect a seven foot four person can do. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, of course he leads the NBA at blocks per game three at a 3.2 clip. Um, if he were to somehow overtake fellow Frenchman, Rudy Gobert, who's the betting odds favorite as the defensive player of the year, he probably won't win the defensive player of the year, but if he did, he would be the first 
rookie in history to do so. Um, pretty, pretty incredible um, what he's doing right now as, as a rookie in a league. And if you, ha- you have to also think about it contextually in this way, right? Like he's grown up all his life playing FIBA rules, which are totally different than the NBA in terms of what you can and can't do. There's no defensive uh there's there's no defensive in the paint rule there's no like offensive paint rule that guys just stand there you have to like embrace mm-hmm. the contact whereas in the nba like you got to move around more you like all these sort of things the the style of basketball is different in terms of the offenses so he's trying to get accustomed to that um he's been awesome though this year man like like must watch tv almost every time he's playing despite how terrible the spurs are so let me ask you about the spurs then in, in general because I have heard just glowing things about Wembenyama, but you mentioned the team is still so bad. Is I mentioned that Sohan was, or you mentioned that Sohan was playing the guard position, and that's not really his true natural position. Do they not really have someone to run the point, or do they not have shooters? Is it like all of the above, or like what? Like no. what are they lacking? That when just when, everything when Pop was doing that, he was just like nobody really had a good explanation for it. He was just sort of doing it. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what to like, it was just pop trying some stuff out. So I what guess. are the big things that they're missing then? Like, are they just missing everything? Anybody to, everything? everything. It's, I mean, they've, it's... they've got like Trey Jones, like Doug McDermott, Chetty Osman, but like Devin Vassell is, is kind of good. He's, he's got some talent. Um, they just don't, it's the only guy I recognized out of that list that, that you gave, <laughs> to be honest with you. So I kind of see what the problem is. Yeah, they just don't really have like much there. And the Western Conference is really deep. Like nobody expected them to actually be good, but I think because of like the hype around Wembenyama being the greatest prospect since LeBron, people just all of a sudden expected the Spurs to be like you Yeah, know? they overestimated the actual impact he would have for the team. The, the like, immediate yeah. impact. Yeah. yeah. I like, get you. I, I still think it's a good fit for him. I don't like I would be surprised if Pop is still coaching there five years from now. I'd be surprised if he's still coaching there three years from now. Um he's gotta be up there in age too, right? Yeah, he's Even getting around. older. He's getting older. Yeah. And that's not Pop slander. It's just it's just the simple yes, fact facts, that he's getting yeah. older. Um yeah, I, I I don't know. There's what I'll say is they're they're not a good team, but um, they could maybe make some moves at the trade market. I actually think they could move Doug McDermott to certain teams um, with a deadline coming up. Trade deadline is February 8th, a week from today when we're recording. Um, <laughs> Doug McDermott to the Knicks, baby. Doug McDermott to the Knicks. Bring it on. Uh, we got some Knicks listeners. We'll no, that'd be happy. Seriously, though, you could make that happen. Trade uh, Evan Fournier and uh, maybe something small. And then well, doesn't Fournier McDermott. have like a big contract or something that, that they yeah, gotta find a way to unload? McDermott's right around there too, and and you okay. can the you could add in different pieces to where it would match up salary wise. Gotcha. There might maybe be a better move you can make for Fournier, maybe, but for all intents and purposes, uh, the Knicks have have said like we're trying to trade him, and if if they are able to get him off the roster, it's going to be to one of it's not going to be to a contender because like Fournier isn't really that good. So it, it's going to be to uh, one of the teams in the league who's not great offensively that needs a veteran that can score and handle the ball essentially and take, 
take minutes away from from some of their younger players that they're trying to rest. Um, he would be a good like he'd probably end up starting for them if he doesn't. Well, no, I don't think he'd be starting, but he'd be a, a guy off the bench where maybe they use him. They might the Spurs might even just like cut him honestly right afterwards if they made that trade. I'm not really sure. Um, yeah, February eighth, the trade deadline. There's um, it's a week away, week from today. It's it's close, and I will say like there's there's a potential that the biggest moves of the NBA season trade wise have already happened in terms of like OG Ananobi moving from Toronto to the Knicks, Pascal Siakam moving from Toronto to the Pacers, uh, Bruce Brown going back to Toronto in that deal. Um, Bruce Brown is probably a name he'll he could end up getting moved by Toronto. Uh, New York would actually be a great fit for him with the Knicks um he's, he's not an awesome defensive player he doesn't really line up with Tibbs's mindset in that regard but he would bring uh, a little bit more shooting and offense to the team uh just give them some some more options besides uh just Brunson and and, and Suggs and whatnot um DeJounte Murray has been a huge hot name in the trade market recently um there's a lot of teams that could use uh, secondary ball handlers. The Knicks are actually one of those teams for DeJounte. Uh, it's, that's a little bit, that deal is a little bit more difficult to, to make happen considering what you just gave up for Ananobi. Like I think if you're making, if you're the Knicks and you make another move, you have to really weigh your options in terms of what it is. You're not trading Julius Randall. He just made another all-star team. Um, whatever next move you make, it has to be done with conviction and you have to make sure it elevates you to whatever that next step is, right? You don't want to just make a, a, a lateral move, which DeJounte Murray, he might help you like a little bit, but as he turned you from the one of the four or five best teams in the East to clear cut one of the best two or three, probably not. Um, Zach Levine, kind of the same thing. Like, I don't think he necessarily fits into the play style of the Knicks. The Knicks aren't going to go after him. Is he going to go to the Lakers like he wants to? I don't know. Is that like the Lakers need help? They're ninth in the West in the West right now, which is not where LeBron wants to be. Um, but like, I don't necessarily know if that happens. You know, he, he could end up somewhere else. He could end up Orlando, Houston. He might not even get end up getting traded at all. It might just all be smoke and mirrors, and and the Bulls just end up, you know somewhere in the midst of of the east and and levine has to spend another off season in chicago so to speak i don't really think the bulls are going to end up doing anything um I mean, I, yeah, they're, they're kind of sitting there in the middle of the package you know it's like what like what you're right like what could a team like that actually do to put them into competitor status they there's there's probably not a move you can make at the trade deadline that can elevate you to that spot well you could it, it just depends on like where they are at right now, you could make the argument that if they start playing better, that they could still make it into a playoff series and just be cannon fodder to the Celtics or Bucks or whoever ends up with one of those two seeds. Knicks, Cavs, Sixers, doesn't matter. Um, for the Bulls, the, the biggest concern really is like, what's our next move? DeMar DeRozan isn't getting any younger when Levine's contract runs out, he's probably not going to stick around. So at some point you have to offload this asset and try to get something out of it so that you can 
move on to whatever the next chapter is. Kobe White has been pretty good this year for the Bulls. He's he's been a really improved player uh, from UNC. You might remember him from some old UNC Duke games, like we were talking about earlier. Um, but otherwise, there's not a ton in Chicago going on right now. That's that's awesome. Um, Atlanta is the team that I think is way more likely to make a move. I think of these players, DeJounte Murray is probably the most likely the way he's been playing recently. It almost seems like he's trying to audition for some of these teams like, like, like the Lakers, or maybe even like, uh, golden state, the warriors who have really been struggling this year. Um, that that's the guy I think that of those three names I mentioned probably has the best chance of being moved, but I would say it's, it's most likely that, what happens is any moves you see closer to the deadline at this point will just be like smaller secondary stuff for, for contending teams trying to add bench and roll guys. You won't, I don't think you're going to see like a huge splash move at this point. If you did, it, it would surprise me. And I don't even necessarily think that like, like Murray isn't like a cannonball splash. Murray is like a, like a belly flop splash splash maybe not that bad because it won't necessarily hurt that much but like a like a pencil dive or something you know where you like don't quite get the form on it right maybe one of your legs is bent <laughs> i got you i'm not much of a diver or swimmer but i can picture it for sure whereas like levine i don't really think is like i, I i'm not a huge levine fan like if you put him in a situation where he's got other good players around him, you would think he'd play better. But to me, he he gives off like big Bradley Beal vibes in terms of, I want to see him actually like lead a team. Maybe he's just destined to be the second or third best player on a title winning team. You know, maybe that's like his, his ceiling, um, which is fine. That it's, it is what it is for some guys, you know? Yeah. It's just interesting to me that you're saying that, you know, a week out here that you think the big moves have already been made. Like I compare, the NFL trade deadline or the MLB trade deadline, really, I mean, stuff goes up right down to the wire, you know, on, you know, to the hour sometimes, even on that final day in July or, or whatnot for baseball. So it's interesting to me that, that you have that situation here. I mean, can I ask you this? Yeah. Like you talked about how the Knicks have made some moves already and and, and they might be done now and, and, and the biggest moves for them might already be behind them. Like how far of a gap do you think that they have to close between the Bucks and the Celtics. Because for me, like, I'm a novice to the NBA, but I know that the top dogs in the Eastern Conference are the Bucks and the Celtics with even a bigger uh, gap as well between Bucks and Celtics. Like, how far off are they from those teams? I'm not just talking games in the standings. Like, I test actual talent-wise, how far off are they? Um. Okay, so you were using efficiency. And I uh, guess, like, also, like, I guess how far off are they and like is it is it one trade move or is it is it are they really that close that's kind of what I was getting at in terms of reeling it back into the trade deadline talk well it depends on who you target with that move um like you would have to you're looking for a guy that can when it comes down to it, what matters most at the tail end of the playoffs is you need guys who can win one on one matchups late in games that can like create and hit shots essentially, or create shots for others. Um, that's why Curry has won all these ranks. That's why Kobe won all his ranks. That's why MJ won all his ranks. That's why Kawhi won a ring in Toronto. 
That's why LeBron has won all his ranks, right? He, he also had good players around him in Miami, and he has AD with him in, in Los Angeles. Like, you need guys around you. It's, it's really hard to do it yourself, and it usually doesn't happen. Uh, even in Toronto, like, OG Ananobi was, was a pretty good player for that stretch. Pascal Siakam was there. Fred Van Vliet was, was pretty good when he was there. Kyle Lowry, who went on to, to help the Heat be competitive and fit into that Heat culture before he recently got traded to uh, the Charlotte Hornets um, for Terry Rozier. Um, I, I don't know who the specific guy is for the Knicks. I think that is a not necessarily – I don't think that's a trade deadline now problem unless they can really get something to, to work for um, – for an year, or they can find a way to add a guy like Bruce Brown or or, or Murray mm-hmm. without giving up a ton that really inhibits their future. Um, it's more like what I was kind of saying before, where you just need to make sure the next move is the right one. Like you don't want to swing for the fences in this situation and end up with like a single because you could still be getting a good player and they can help you, but are, are they going to help you enough to like, to just justify the package you give up for him basically. Right. Yeah. Or even like get you to the place where you want to be right. Like mm-hmm. the Celtics lost in seven games last year to the heat after they were down three, nothing. The fact that they even made it seven games after that was crazy. And the heat are probably the best coach team in the league with Eric Spolstra at the helm. Like the heat are super underrated. And I actually think even though they're, in the seven seed right now in the East, they're still going to be one of the most dangerous teams to face at the end of the year. I don't care what their record is. When you flip Jimmy Butler's switch from not giving a damn to giving a damn, they're a totally different team. And they, they, they know what the game is. It's get to the playoffs and then match up with everybody from there on out. Yeah. I mean, and all you have to do is look at like the run that the heat had last year. So I don't doubt you when it, with your opinion that Eric Sprolstra can uh can get them to a, a deep run in the uh in the playoffs. To go back to to how far are they off though from the top of the Eastern Conference, right? Efficiency wise, in terms of net rating, the Knicks are actually the fourth best team in the league. The Bucks are the tenth at three point seven. A lot of that has to do with the Bucks' defensive ratings are not very good at all. But the Bucks' offensive rating, uh, they're they're third in the league at one twenty point one. Uh, defensively. Uh, they're somewhere in the middle of the pack. They're 19th at 116.4 uh, defensive net rating. Um, the Celtics have the best net rating in the league at 9.1. Okay. The Knicks are fourth at 6.3. The second place team in terms of net rating, the Oklahoma City Thunder is at 7.8. So the gap between the Thunder and the Knicks right now is actually bigger than the gap between the Celtics and the Thunder. So they, interesting. They, yeah. So they've got another couple of teams to like really vault over. And the real point that I'm making right now is that um, the Celtics are title favorites for Vegas and they've got the best record in the league. Efficiency wise, they're the best team in the league. Um, this is kind of like the prove it year for them. Like you just gave Brown this extension. He's the highest played payer in the league now. Uh, Tatum that's coming up for him as well and you're not gonna let him walk like he's gonna get the deal he's gonna stick around he's expressed he wants to be one of the best Celtics in history if he doesn't end up staying in Boston I would be shocked like something catastrophic would have to happen Um, but I, I think 
especially with some of the moves they made in, in the offseason, which kind of goes back to our trade deadline point. Like the Damian Lillard move was seismic and sparked a lot of other moves that followed. Um, Drew Holiday to, to Portland in that deal, who then got traded to the Celtics. Uh, Drew has been known as the Dame stopper, quote unquote, uh, in the past because of how well he plays Dame defensively. And he's not even like, he's probably like the fifth best player on the Celtics, Drew Holiday. And that's a guy that somehow like they upgraded from Marcus Smart to him in that move. He's he's like a better version of Marcus Smart. If if Marcus Hart Smart is the second biggest Russian egg doll, Drew Holiday is the first. <laughs> <laughs> I like I, we always come back to the Russian egg dolls every time, every time we every do. Every time. Um Go ahead. But I mean, like I'm glad you brought up the Celtics here because I, I I can feel the pulse of the fan base. Like it's it's antsy. They they believe, but I, I think that there is a little bit of an air of of what's happened the past two years hanging over them, you know, losing to the Heat last year. And then what was it? Was it the Warriors two years ago in the yeah, in Warriors. the conference finals or, Six games. or in the NBA finals? NBA finals, um, yeah. What's I think I know where where you're gonna answer with this, but like what makes you feel different about this Celtics team this year compared to the last couple of years? Is it a player? I mean, is it like, what, what it's do a, you really think is the difference? It's a few different things. Um, they've gone through a good bit of growth in the last few years. Like I think it starts actually with the, the year Udoka was the head coach where um, Brad Stevens moves from head coach to owner to a uh, front office. They appoint Udoka as head coach and personality-wise, he was totally different from Stevens. He was like the the rah-rah, like, fuck you, play better, like, show up, be a man, that sort of thing. He was coaching with the exception of Smart and Horford boys still in Tatum and Brown, guys that had all the talent in the world but didn't have that, like, mean sort of, like, like, I have to win this game. I have to win the series, you know? They didn't quite have that yet. And Udoka brought a lot of that out from them. And then he has the scandal within the team where there's still a lot of questions around that. Some are saying it was uh, an affair with uh, a certain member of the organization or uh, with a spouse of someone involved in the organization. I don't want to get into specifics because I, I don't know the details and I don't want to speak ill or, or uh, misspeak on anybody for that, for that matter. Um, I think Missoula last year was in a tough position because um, the Udoka news broke out like in training camp and they just had to like pick somebody. And um, before they could put Missoula in charge, um, their uh, assistant had their assistant coach, Will Hardy ends up getting Nick uh, nabbed by Danny Ainge in Utah who was basically the head coach in waiting or would have been, he would have taken over the job. And then um, their second guy off the bench ended up going and coaching college ball. I, for, I forget his name off the top of my head. So they ended up picking a second row. Joe is how some people know him. Cause he was in, the, he wasn't even <laughs> in the first row of coaches. He was in the second row and in the playoffs the year before they picked him up. He didn't really have an assistant staff around him. So this year they, they put Sam Cassell, uh, as his assistant, who was on the championship winning team in 2008, before the season started in team minicamp, they brought in the members of that 2008 team to just be around the team, just like invited them back and said, hey, just like hang around and just interact with the guys. 
And some of that culture, I think, started leading into this team. And then you add in the moves to acquire Christoph Przingis, to acquire uh, Drew Holiday, who Drew Holiday has won a championship. He's been there, done that in Milwaukee. He also knows the Bucks in and out, inside and out. Um, the Bucks, though, of course, just brought in Doc Rivers as head coach. And, and that's a controversial thing because theoretically, you know, if those two teams end up meeting up in the playoffs, there's another wrinkle to it where Doc has all this, these playoff struggles recently, really since the 2008 title. But um, Boston just keeps coming up that were, you know, when he was in uh, Philly, for whatever reason, like this is the Sixers and Celtics would always play in the playoffs. Um, I think Przingis has been huge, though, to answer your question uh, exactly in terms of what's different with this team. He does so many things for them that just changes how they operate offensively for the most part. Late in games, they can still get a little, um, uh, how should I phrase it? Um, they start driving below the speed limit sometimes when the last just like, couple of minutes of the game. Coasting to the finish type deal? not even it's like it just gets like lazy it's like give it to tatum tatum's gonna like try to break you down with some dribble moves and then he's gonna have some kind of pull up three-pointer or step back or something like that they just don't take they kind of get away from their actual offensive game plan uh that's what worries me because it goes back to what i was saying earlier uh in the episode the teams that win championships down the stretch are typically teams that have guys that can win matchups that can break down people one-on-one and hit and create shots from those looks. And Tatum and Brown are awesome at that sometimes, but Perzingis from the pick and roll gives both of them an, uh, a little extra wrinkle where you can switch up those looks and you can still have Derek White in the corner, who leads the NBA, by the way, in net rating, uh, only the most efficient player in the league and is a ungodly presence defensively as a guard. So, so, so good. Leads the leads the NBA in blocks per in a leads the guards of the NBA in blocks per game. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. <laughs> um, Brown's having a career year. Like I don't necessarily know if this is the year we win the title. I, I could definitely see us getting back to the finals. Um, I think back to games against the Timberwolves games against the nuggets so far this regular season where the Timberwolves took us to overtime and the nuggets beat us on our home floor. Um, that's the team you, you got to get through to me right now. It's Jokic and those guys. And the teams in the West are going to have to figure out a way to beat them four times in a seven-game series. I, I think that's going to be really, really difficult to do. And um, I don't know. I, I I love the Celtics roster this year, and, and I think that we are title favorites for a reason. Um, certainly, I feel like the clock is ticking to a certain extent. But also, like if you look at the history with some players – MJ, LeBron, those guys, they didn't win their first title until they were 28. Tatum is still a couple years away from that. And and Brown is is getting closer, but he's not the one on this team, you know? So I would say it's it's getting closer to where you, you need a ring. Um, but I think just being able to get back to that final stage will mean a lot. And And from there, it's... You know, it just depends on who you end up facing. But there's a long way to go between now and then. You know, we could we could maybe add a, a piece at the at the deadline, something smaller. Uh, we won't make any big moves, but we could use another kind of wing off the bench or or something of that caliber. Maybe a, a different guard to throw in as a 
as a guy besides Peyton Pritchard. I, I don't know. We'll have to see what happens. Yeah, I hear you. I, I think that, like, just looking at the standings and everything right here, something that could work in your favor is you, you just kind of hope that the teams in the West beat each other up on their road to get there. Because it looks like the West is more top-heavy, would you say, than, than the East. I mean, when you got the Nuggets at fourth in the West right now at, at 33 and 16, and then, you know, the Celtics are the only team above 33 wins in, in the East. Well, I would say the uh, the West is definitely a gauntlet. And I I would actually contest that depending on how the playoffs work out, you could have seven teams in there that could all make a finals run. Not necessarily winning the finals, but getting there. So you have those seven teams off the top of your head. Who, yeah, who would and, and I would put them, I can put them in uh reverse order for you, more or less. If you if you got it, yeah, give them to me. Um so okay, I, I'm not gonna actually rank them reversely but i'll give you the seven teams um i'm just oh, going what to a go- tease that, that was then <laughs> I, i'm just gonna go from reverse order in the standings um okay all the, right let's shoot the lakers who just won the in-season tournament that's my only justification for really including them in this interesting list. interesting aren't they they're just hovering around like 500 right now right is that yeah. just the lebron factor well it's that it also um they're a team that probably will make a move at the deadline probably and, and they could be an entirely mm-hmm. different team um We've seen that work out in their favor before. Uh, Dallas, I would put in there. I think Luca is having a really great season, and I think Kyrie as a two option to him, who is not like doing typical Kyrie shit, where he's acting like a head case. I think that's actually yeah. If they paired up better, because I know that that they that was a big move at the trade deadline last year, <laughs> and it backfired on him. Really, I guess if you look at it solely in terms of how the season outcome was last year, they missed the playoffs. Kyrie's playing better this year. Um, I, I like their team a little bit better. They brought in Grant Williams. And they've done some other things. Um, I would say Luca is just really the key for them. Like, sure. It, uh, like, I don't necessarily see them actually winning the finals, but they could be like a dark horse where if they go on a run and, and make a right move at the deadline and so on and so on, you know. Um, the Suns, I would put in there. They're eight and two in their last 10 games. They've been one of the NBA's hottest teams. And shouting out the Duke Blue Devils again, uh, Grayson Allen has been so damn good this year. He's been one of the most efficient scorers in the game. His true shooting percentage is up there with some of the best in basketball. Like, nobody saw this coming because he was really struggling in Milwaukee. And now all of a sudden, he looks like he could be an actual piece in Phoenix. Um there's there's a lot of questions with their team, but I would not discount them at all, especially with KD there and with Booker there. Um, Allen as like a fourth option, sort of like even just off the bench helps a lot with having another guy you can go to with for a team that a lot of people wondered how deep they would be coming into the season. Um, then obviously you've got the top four of Denver, Los Angeles, the, the Clippers, um, Oklahoma City and Minnesota and and Denver I, I still say probably has the best chance out of those four teams but Minnesota has been a monster this year Anthony Edwards looks like a, a man on a mission Oklahoma City is really young but really talented and really good defensively which usually doesn't happen for younger teams um, usually you see young teams struggle defensively in the in the NBA and then you've got the Clippers who I, I um, that is the team I am also kind of worried about playing against i would like to face 
not necessarily like, but I would prefer to face an Oklahoma City or a Minnesota in in the finals if it came down to it because I feel like youth and inexperience plays a little bit more of a role there. Whereas Los Angeles, they've got uh, they've got a Paul George on their team who's had battles with LeBron deep in the playoffs back in his days in, in Indiana. They they've got Kawhi Leonard who has an NBA championship ring. They've got James Harden who's had his fair share of battles with Curry's Warriors back when he was with Houston in the West uh, a long time ago. And then of course uh, recently in in uh, Philly last year with with the Celtics as well going to six games and and he actually played great in that series. Um, yeah, man, I I, I would say the West feels way more open in terms of teams I could actually see making it to the finals than the East. And I would say like, yeah, I was going to ask how long is that list in the East? In the East, it can't be nearly as long. It depends on how, if so, and being Torres meniscus, if he can come back and like be healthy for the playoffs, um, then I would still put them in the list and he, he may be able to, I just don't know. Like, how healthy he'll be so for me they're kind of on the fringe right now um miami i would put in there um the knicks i would put in there but kind of like half-heartedly hesitantly yeah Yeah, like i think their ceiling is limited i think they could i think they could grind their way to a conference championship series but if they actually made it to the finals, I would be surprised. And that's even including if they played like if they played the Bucks, if they played uh if they played Miami. Um really I think it's like Boston, Milwaukee, the Knicks, and, and Miami. Even though Miami's the seventh seed, like I, I would still put them in there. Cleveland gotcha. has has some things going on there that I like. And uh when Darius Garland is playing a hundred percent, that's gonna help them out too. Um but yeah, I, I would say it's the list in the East is much shorter of teams I think are legit contenders. Definitely, man. You know, one stat that leaps out to me too, it's like the Celtics are 22 and two at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How and so, so that's well, 22 be, and three because we lost to the Lakers. Oh, you just lost. Tonight. Yeah, so, we just lost to the Lakers tonight when they were sitting LeBron and Anthony Davis. Uh, wow. Tyler, Tyler Harrow went off, or not Tyler Harrow, Austin Reeves went off. That one's got to make you scratch your head, huh? Yeah, I don't like it. Um, To me, this game screams of a Austin Reeves trade bait game where the Lakers are now going to try to use him as a piece in a deal to maybe upgrade and get somebody else in there. Um, Whereas the, the Celtics, like, just a, just a bad game uh, on their ends. Um, yeah it sounds like it man but where i was going with that is all right even now that they had their third loss at home of the season we're at the midway point of the year or just roughly i mean with the all-star break and they've only lost three games i mean you've got to beat them four times in a series you got i mean you got to figure it well you got to grab at least what two road wins probably to do that if you and because you're assuming then you go what two and one at home you know, yeah. either that or you got to win at least one, I guess. But I, I, but I'm assuming that you don't sweep them in your at your home court and in a seven game series. So you got to have to grab two on the road in in the garden. I mean, it's it's been a legit home atmosphere too, from what I've heard from people who actually attend the games. It's um, 
Like there have been some moments in, in games, kind of like like the Denver and uh, Minnesota games I mentioned, where it's felt like legitimate playoff atmospheres. Um, yeah, man, I, I would say this is this is going to be our best shot. I thought last year was our best shot, but it really looks like this is going to be our best shot of this uh, core of Celtics players that that we have right now. Um, and it's not even really the same core because I mean, like Smart's not there anymore. You know, you still have the crux of it, which is, um, well, really what they discovered last year was that the core of the team was actually Brown, Tatum, White, not Brown, Tatum, Smart. That's That White was the mm-hmm. third guy and that they needed to find a way to get a better third guy or bring in a fourth. And Przingis is kind of that like uh, 3A, if you will, to, to White's 3B. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. That's all that that's all I got really man unless you just want to like well the only other thing I wanted to ask about is um and we haven't touched on them really at all I mean you mentioned Curry briefly I think in the all-star portion Golden State like what's going on there dude they're sitting outside of a of a playoff spot right now right I mean what like is are they just too old now do they have another run in the tank or have we seen is that dynasty pretty much coming to an end and people are just afraid to say it um I so by dynasty okay so in in the context of like I could see I could still see them winning another NBA title in the future like I could see really I could see Curry winning one more championship in the future what's he he, how old is he right now he's 35 he's 35 he's regressed a little bit this year but I think the biggest thing you're seeing really though, is that he just doesn't have the secondary pieces around him that he, that he used to have. And um, like, if you go back and look at those old teams, like, yeah, KD was there for a few of them. And and that's, that's no small name. That's one of the best scorers in NBA history. You know, um, mm-hmm. Clay is not the player that he once was. He's making a ton of money. He's set to be a free agent after this year. I, I don't know if they'd be able to trade him. I don't know if they would, um probably wouldn't get too much for him if he's going to be a free agent at the end of this year right i mean you're you're it's basically just a rental at that point well certain title contending teams would love to have him <laughs> like it just depends but, on he, he makes a shitload of money like you have to figure out a way to make that side of it work and there right. are really a lot of deals that work out for him and you also talked about like he's having a down year right like i even looked yeah. at some of his numbers like his like his scoring's down i mean are you efficiency like how, wise this is like the worst season of his career yeah, yeah. like how that's what i was gonna ask it's like how i mean how much of a down year is it really is it is it just slightly off or are we talking significant drop-offs um, i'm talking like points per game perspective just like all of his his numbers you know points assists, whatever whatever he does well it's not just that it's also like defensively he's lost a step like mm-hmm. i just feel like it's really easy to to get by him now whereas he used to be a pretty awesome defensive player back when he was in his prime uh injuries really just hampered him in that respect um then you've got the whole thing with like jordan pool last year getting punched and then uh 
<laughs> by Draymond, and then Draymond <laughs> this this year coming back and turning oh, into a USC fighter again. every time. Yeah, every time, dude, it's ridiculous. And now, now all of a sudden, it's nice Draymond playing, which like oh, for a time, dude. He made our remember he made our naughty list when we did the yeah. naughty nice list. That's oh, and that's in the heart of football season, and he still found a way to get into <laughs> to our podcast segment. Yeah, it's for him. It's just like if he's playing like nice Draymond, then it's not really Draymond. Like part of what makes him who he is is his mental edge like the attitude and physicality he plays with if you can find a way to do that without like <laughs> getting thrown out of games or like turning into john bones jones then <laughs> fuck dude like <laughs> you'll be okay but even then i mean he's getting older um there there is actually so there was some smoke that uh the warriors actually offered clay an extension back in december um Obviously, no extension has been announced or reported as being agreed upon. He's still he's still with the Warriors for now, and he is still a pending free agent. Um, Curry's got a few more year, years left on his deal. They've got Kuminga there, who's actually been um, a little bit better, but uh, and has improved a good bit this year. But like Wiggins started the year hurt, and he hasn't really been like a consistent option for them. Um, that that title win last year a couple uh, a couple years ago is going to haunt me forever as a Celtics fan if if this is the the end of the Warriors dynasty if that was the last title they got and it came to us and it just became and it just came because of a Draymond going crazy in game two and then Steph like essentially murdering us in in game four or whatever (laughs) you know it's it's like uh yeah that's that's gonna haunt me for a long time because I love Steph. I love Steph Curry. And oh, I do ha- too, man. Having to feel yeah, the I root for him all the time. And an NBA Finals was like gut wrenching to me. Yeah, I mean, it's so fun. I mean, like you have to acknowledge how much he's he's changed the game. I mean, you know, made it. You know, and like I don't think I'm going out on a limb saying this. Uh, I think it's pretty clear cut. Maybe you'd have a different opinion, but greatest shooter of all time. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. I mean, 100%. yeah. So. Um, it's been awesome to watch him play. You talked about potentially offering Clay an extension. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Nothing really confirmed. Like, do you think it's even advantageous for the Warriors to try and bring him back if he might be no. on the decline? No. Not he's not the defensive player he was, the scoring's down. Yeah, like so if they if they're giving him that contract, it's very much so for past performance, not for what they expected. Yeah. Him and and what'd you what'd you say it was rumored to be? Like two years, forty was it forty something million? I yeah in my notes here um there was a rumor that they offered him an extension around the ballpark of two years like 48 ish million in that sort of yeah. like ballpark. I don't know what the cap is in in the NBA but like 24 25 million a year sounds crazy uh the the cap is actually going up uh the cap's going to be going up this coming year with the with the new uh the new media rights agreement so um that's going to be changing and and players are going to be making even more money uh a few years from now when the media rights change again, um, it's crazy. Players are just going to keep making more and more because there's money to be made in the NBA. The NBA generates a ton of revenue and it's going to lead to some guys who you wouldn't necessarily expect getting paid contracts that are top dollar, like a Jalen Brown, whereas like he's not even the best player on his own team. He's a great player. He's not even the best player on his own team, though, and and he's 
signed the the most lucrative extension in, in league history, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got you. I feel you. Um, anything else on on your mind, NBA wise, that you're you're curious about? Um, the only other really thing we, we glossed over was uh, Embiid and Halliburton probably missing out on NBA awards because of uh, games played. Embiid. That one I don't feel as bad about because now with the meniscus, like he's going to be missing more time. He's definitely not going to have the the games requirement. Uh, but a lot of the games he was sitting out earlier in the year were just like were just load management, which is the whole point of the rule being introduced this year to is to avoid stuff like that. But I guess now load management strikes its or rears its ugly head with Embiid picking up this injury. Uh, I guess there was a point to it. Um, Halliburton though he's going to come back and he's going to play but once he does come back he can only miss I think uh four more games the rest of the season and if he does he he won't be eligible for any awards or all NBA lists or anything like that which will uh, discount him from an extra five percent in salary uh rate for his extension so instead of um it being like 25% of his team's payroll that he could receive with the, with an extension, it would go to 30% if he made one of those teams. So he could miss out on with his contracts, uh, like upwards of $54 million, which is a bunch wow. of money. That's a lot of money. Yeah, clearly. It's a lot clearly of basketballs. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, no, I mean, there, there's nothing else on my mind. I, you know, I, I was interested in talking about the Warriors and then I wanted to get your take on the Celtics. So we, we really went into uh, those two things pretty comprehensively as, as well as some of these, uh, this other trade bait coming up here at the deadline. Um, All-star game, last thought here as we're like approaching that. Like I, the thing I haven't liked about the NBA is that the All-star game never seems to really be taken seriously. Like what's your thought as a fan there? I know it's obviously there's no defense played and I'm not really expecting them to go all out or anything like that, but some like, what's your thought on how the actual all-star game is like portrayed on, on TV and how the players treat it? Um, yeah, I mean, like not many NBA all-star games have been taken hyper seriously by both sides. And it's not um, just NBA. Obviously, the NFL doesn't even freaking have a, a Pro Bowl anymore. Yeah. You know? That's like La- how much, how little the players cared about it. Last year's All-Star game was kind of cool for me because Jason Tatum set an NBA All-Star game record for most points scored in the game with 55. So that was like, that was cool from my perspective. But I'm, I'm sure for most NBA fans, it was just sort of like a, like, like not, a, I feel like not a bunch of people pay attention to the NBA All-Star game, the, the other festivities around it. Um, I don't know. Believe I, it or not, I actually make it uh, a thing of mine to watch. the. I'm not a big NBA really? fan, but I watch the All-Star game. Yeah, I always take the over in the end because they, they don't play any defense and it's all the overs like in the 300s. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> yes, yeah, we'll have, to, we'll have to ride that this year for fun. Um, for sure. But yeah, I, I what I, the only thing I think, that I'm going to kind of miss is that uh, they can't pick teams anymore. They, they actually went back to the old format where we're just going to have the East team play the mm-hmm. West team. We used to have these team. We, we, for the last few years, we've been doing team captains and uh, you would actually like draft teams from there. And yep. the funniest moment of it was uh, <laughs> when uh, LeBron and Kevin Durant were team captains uh, after 
uh, James Harden requested his trade away from Brooklyn to Philadelphia. And the move happened, and he made the All-Star Reserves. And famously, Kevin Durant picked everybody besides James Harden. And LeBron, like, kept trying to give him opportunities to pick Harden and, like, kept doing it and kept doing it. And, uh, like, everybody on the – like, Chuck Barkley – or uh, Charles Barkley on the broadcast is talking about him and, and stuff like that. And I think the famous line was um, – was – uh. LeBron asked, like, can Harden even play? Like, isn't he hurt? And Barkley snapped back at him. He just got traded. He's not hurt anymore. And Kevin Durant <laughs> just starts, like, laughing. Because, like, it's true. It's true. Oh, I love Chuck, man. Uh, that guy is hilarious. <laughs> so funny. Um, yeah, I would say that that's, like, the the one thing I'll miss about this year's NBA uh, All-Star game. I don't know, man. All-Star games have kind of lost their shine to me. The, yeah, that's that's kind of what I was getting at. I didn't realize they were going back to the t- traditional format, but uh, baseball All Star Weekend is the best. And yeah, baseball baseball's really got that by one that. locked down. I will yeah, stand by that. Clear cut, clear the cut highlight, baseball. The highlight of the summer. Although I guess this summer we have the Olympics too. That might uh, take the spotlight away briefly. I don't know when exactly those are though. Not sure myself, but maybe we could do a podcast episode or two on it basketball will be in the olympics this year we're, we're putting a uh, team usa is is going to be coming back after uh the fiba finals this past year love it yeah we gotta bring home gold we we do the, we do for sure especially after uh germany ended up winning uh the fiba world championship that was, that was still a surprise shout out dennis schroeder <laughs> um among others um, all right, man. This has been a fun hoops episode. We've covered a lot here and uh, gone pretty in depth on on the college side of it and the NBA side as well. Um, stick around for Fifth and Long's Super Bowl Media Week next week. Got a lot of content coming for you guys. We're gonna be doing our best to have a, a little something something for you every day leading up to the big game starting uh, Monday. So. Um, you can officially enjoy your fifth and long Friday as it is 12.01 a.m. Eastern time right now as Paul and I are wrapping up. Yeah, we're night owls. Paul needs his bedtime. I can I can see he's tired. Uh, <laughs> Paul, my friend, get some rest, and uh, we'll talk some more sports right here on the fifth and long podcast pretty soon, okay? Absolutely. Hope everybody enjoyed uh, the first real basketball talk of the fifth and long season. And, yeah, man, I can't wait for the Super Bowl media week next week so everybody tune back in then and listen to what we got for you until then hope everybody stay safe out there and god bless absolutely fifth and long fans enjoy your day and join us again next week right here on the fifth and long podcast